Hi, just having a week off from the Leadership Enigma. I know, can you believe it? I didn't want to leave you with nothing, so just wanted to share with you a couple of highlights of some of the best bits of over 158 episodes. We'll be back the week after next. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico, and welcome to the Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked, award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues. It is a huge and massively warm welcome to the Leadership Enigma. How are you, much. my friend? I'm all very good, thank you very and it's, much. And it's not just a phrase, because we have known each other for uh, many years now. I have, I, I remember sitting there at the side of the tennis court in awe of your serve and how powerful your forehand was. I think I'll just stop the episode there, which is wonderful. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll start with that. Uh, listen, it, it's been great to reconnect. Um before we get into, I'm so excited in relation to what you're doing at the moment. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you anyway is because you are a, a serial entrepreneur. You're currently the CMO for X-Ray Glass. We'll come on to that because that's really what this is about. And I'm passionate about people who have a purpose above almost profit. And that's you at the moment. But just give a little bit of background about you being a serial entrepreneur, which is what you are. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm comfortable with that now. Um, I think it's probably worth saying that I probably put most of this down to my mother. Okay. So when I was very young, yep. my mum worked for a really progressive technology company. Um, and as a child, my brother and I shared a bedroom. And my mum, uh, to put food on the table, did some home secretary work. And in 1983, yep. we had in our bedroom this green on black screen computer and it was almost like the, the the melodic sound of her typing at night that used to send us to sleep. Do you remember those keyboards? Yeah, I remember the keyboards. But, you know, I remember being fascinated. She had, and you may not remember, a thing called a modem coupler. And this was where she used to create all of the uh, work, save it, and then had a phone. Yeah. Where you doled it, and then you had to put it into That's these right. two cushions. Yeah. And then it would send the data to her head office. And, you know, at 11, 12 years old, um, I was like, that's fascinating. And that set me on my journey. I mean, I, I used to go to school. I went to a school, JFS in Camden. Yep. And I used to get to school most days at half past five, quarter to six in the morning. And it wasn't round the corner. No, um, it certainly to, wasn't. To go to the computer club to play on our BBC micros and play on the computers. And, and so it's been in my in my veins since a very young age. I love the fact that you mentioned that because I know your mum isn't with us anymore. My mum is no longer with us. So, you know, unfortunately, we share that with us. But I'm really glad that that's a really passionate story for mm. you in relation to who you are now. It means the legacy is always going to yeah, be with yeah, us. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. So... With that passion um, and that insatiable curiosity almost for tech, you went on to be successful with a number of businesses. Just give us a little bit of that background because that was in some ways the catalyst for now what you're doing and the passion you have for this purpose. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, like with many people, entrepreneurs, or certainly in my 
tribe of people. Yeah. Most of my friends, when we were younger, we didn't know what we wanted to do. We didn't have a purpose when we left school. I'm still working it out. Yeah. I mean, I left school. It's. I mean, I have a daughter who's 15 and a half, and I look at her as a baby. Mm. And I left school when I was her age. Wow. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and then I ended up falling into technology. That's another story. Um, and I just felt like I was at home. And I started my own business in 1999, just before the 2000 purported crash yeah. of all the computer systems, yep. which never happened. Um, and we started building up a company. We won a number of awards. We built the company up to over 100 people. And in 2010, um, I actually had a position with a business partner I had at the time where we just, we weren't in love with each other anymore. And it didn't, and, and it felt like work. It didn't feel like right. fun anymore. Okay. And we parted ways. Right. Um, and the business was very successful and I was very lucky to uh, have exited that um, well looked after. Um, but I then thought, you know, I've got to do something else again. I know IT, I'm going to stick to IT. I started up an IT company in 2012. In 2014, um, I was the first ever winner of the Microsoft Worldwide Cloud Partner I of the Year. This. In 2016, I merged with another company that yep. was slightly bigger than myself, um, some of the parts joining us together. In 2018, I won the UK Tech Entrepreneur of the Year. And the latter part of that year, we got bought by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Um, and along that journey, I met some incredible people and, and I was deeply entrenched within the Microsoft ecosystem. Um, and I met a very good friend uh, who wasn't a friend at the time, who was, um, a guy called Dan Scarf and we were competitors, but we were also friends. Jokingly, we call ourselves frenemies. <laughs> right. And, um, he also had a very fortunate, um, experience where he grew his business to over a hundred people, uh, sorry, over 300 people, yep. um, significant revenues. He sold his business to Cognizant and we were like, we've both had these life changing moments. Let's do something different together. Now yeah. we don't have to be driven by money. We certainly didn't want to sell services. We didn't want to have a business that had stock. Um, and we wanted something that we could scale at pace and just use our skills that we've gleaned over the years. Yeah. Um, but the, the sort of like the kernel of it was is we wanted to do something for betterment because it was more fulfilling than anything we'd done before. You yeah. know, moving someone's server to the cloud can only give you so much gratification. What happened in between? Because, you know, we're both recovering lawyers now, aren't we? So you love the study of it. I'm not sure I did. I'm trying to think back. But then he didn't like the practice of no. it. So what what happened there? What was the disconnect? I chose the wrong field. Okay. I went into M&A. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I love people. And being stuck in rooms, doing due diligence, writing contracts. Whilst I intellectually appreciated the efforts that went in, what I was craving was the interpersonal and the negotiations. And as in everything, when you're a youngster, that's not... The what people you have, side of things. Yeah, didn't have access to that as much as I would have wanted. My personal life brought me to move countries quite a few times, which made me lose momentum on the lawyer career side. Right. And me being me, um, if I'm not the best at something, I quit, which is probably not the best thing, and I'm much better now. But at the time, I was like, it's going to take me so long to get to where I want to be 
that I don't know this is really my path. You said something I want to pick up on because this really resonates with me. You said you lost momentum. And sometimes I had that feeling because I did a job, you know, with the police for six years or as a barrister for four years and something else for two years and three years. And in many ways, it felt a little bit flighty. And someone described me as a butterfly because you'll flit and then you'll do something else. Or even when you see something shiny, you run off. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I found that to be problematic growing up where I thought, why is it I can't stick at anything? Did you Mm -hmm. feel it was problematic or did you feel that it was actually part and parcel of the journey that you were on and you would would get to the right destination? Because I didn't at the time. It's only as I got older and wiser, maybe, that I started to accept it more. But I think I struggled. Um, I think in my in my twenties, definitely, what drove me was love. Right. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, that was the most important thing. I felt at the time, and I was wrong, but I felt there's time for a career. This time, yeah. I've got good studies. I'll figure it out. Um, my love life brought me to different places. And quite quickly, especially as I moved uh, to China, I spent five years in Shanghai as a corporate lawyer who had just very nice degrees, but no no working experience nor language skills. Yeah. So I had to study Chinese. Like I just did all the right things, but realized a little too late that it's not that easy to just start fresh somewhere where you just have no either connections or cultural understanding, etc. I mean, it's incredible. You've lived in, I think, in five countries. Mm. You speak five languages. Mm. What was China like? Because that is culturally such a different place from Antwerp, and then you were in, you know, the east coast of the US. What was that like for, you know, uh, a youngster still at the start of a career to suddenly be immersed in a culture where you didn't speak the language, didn't really know anyone? As you say, you moved for love. Oh, yeah. How? How how does that work? Um, I was. I still am, I think, quite a risk taker. I didn't really think it would be a problem, if I'm very honest. I announced to my parents after having so Yale and then New York Bar and then working in New York in one of the most prestigious law firms. And then, sorry, mom and dad, I met someone um, who has a trading business in China. I'm just going to move there. And How did that go see. down? Um, surprisingly well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> interestingly, my mom, who's my, my everything, um, has always been extremely supportive and everything. So she thought, well, yeah, you know, she's smart. My daughter, she'll figure it out. Um, it was quite hard when I got to China. Um, yeah, I, I can't say that it was the best time of my life. Um, it was five years between 2004, 2008, right. where China was not what it is today. Um, like people very different. I I thrive on open conversations and humor and debate and movies and all the things that were not at that time something that was um, very openly um, accepted. Yes. So I found that difficult. I found it difficult not to be able to go to the bookshop or or you know a coffee shop and and have a casual conversation because my language skills and the way I looked made me automatically a foreigner. I had never felt like a foreigner, not even in New York, but I very much felt like a foreigner. Lao Wai, as they say in Chinese, uh, over there. So tell me how that feels, because I I remember one experience in Rwanda where I felt very much... In Rwanda. You just need to show off now, right? Well, no. (laughs) 
I'm like tell China. Me about that. Let me try I'm China. Well, no. What is it? What's it like? Because that was I, I mentioned that because I just remember that that was the the most acute experience of feeling like a foreigner. Yeah. And I was, of course. Tell me what that felt like for you, feeling that way and thinking, hang on, is this now questioning or undermining the decisions that I've made? How did you reconcile that? Or did you still see this as a great curious challenge? So you might have been described as a butterfly, which I've been described as as well, but mostly as a chameleon. I am extremely good at adapting quickly. That's kind of probably one of my superpowers, okay. if, if I may describe it as, as such. However, I think I was pretending a lot during that time. Um, I wasn't aware of who I was going to be, maybe. And I just went with the flow. I was in China. I learned Chinese. I started a job. I lived my life. Um, I wasn't happy because none of these things felt like me fundamentally. Right. I just got on with it. You know, if you, if you come into a place where there's a lot of challenges, my natural instinct is to overcome the challenges without actually thinking, well, hold on, is that actually what I want? So I, I didn't have that mindset back then. We're in a season at the moment where I think we've had the most premiership managers sacked. Mm-hmm. So you're managing West Ham ladies, and you said that there was a time, the first part of the season, it was pretty dire. Yeah. So how did you feel at that time, and how did you lift yourself or help lift others when things aren't going well? Because that's a challenge that all managers have got. So yeah, how, I, how are you dealing with that? I think with the, with the women's team, what was incredibly good yeah. was there were so many ways for us to win. It wasn't like the stadium was full every week. This was this. We had loads of commercial partners and we just had to focus on the football. It was, we had to focus on everything because it was a semi-professional team. Okay. We needed to shorten that, uh, the loss that, that we were having. We needed to make sure that the team could then compete and to make sure that all of these things could happen. So I think how I motivated myself was to make sure that we were growing things to make sure that we were doing our first commercial, like our first commercial deal. I remember it now vividly and I was, they were here and I was printing off the contract and I was running backwards and forwards all around the stadium. And when you talk about not like you at 22 turning up to yeah, the courtroom, yeah. that was a bit like me on the first day. I I did a, uh, <laughs> I did this commercial deal and it was like, it was, it was, again, another big achievement for me where it was something the first time I've done it and I almost then could say, okay, I can do this type thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it was almost me running all around the stadium trying to get this printed out, getting this pen and trying to do this and trying to make sure everyone was, everyone was happy. Um, Probably stood you in good stead yeah. you've done all those little mini <laughs> roles within West Ham beforehand. Um, I mean, what's your biggest what's your biggest takeaway or learning from that period of you involved from, with the ladies? Uh, is there is there a real all, all of my time at the ladies? Yeah, because um, let's be honest, it was the the uh, the pressure was cranked again because then you had um, a TV yeah, documentary so, yeah. uh, team with you, right? And yeah, so for a season. So we so we had six weeks to go from semi professional yep. to professional. We got like a training ground or like a large part of the training ground was like built with like, we were, we built it all from scratch. We signed 16 players. Um, we bought in 10 staff. And I think during all of that experience, there was a mixture of 
firstly, how are we going to compete? Yeah. Because you're bringing in all these new players, you're bringing in all these new staff, and you think that it's all yes. makes sense in your head, but you're like, at the same time, this could all come back to like explode in our face. We brought in Matt, Matt Beard, who's amazing, and I still speak to him now. He's now at Liverpool. Um, and I remember we sat there on the first first day against uh, Reading, and we drew nil nil, and it was the biggest relief that I've that I had in our first WSL game. We drew nil nil. It was the most boring game, but it was a massive sense of relief that okay we can compete at this level because you're always worried you're going to lose like five nil in the first game, and then it's a bit like, okay. But yeah, no, I think the TV cameras was great, and the big reason we did that was. I just wanted to get as much awareness about the team as possible, whether that was to sponsors, whether that was to generate people thinking about women's football and then hopefully thinking about West Ham, whether that was someone who lived opposite yeah. where we played and they'd watch us one night on on BBC One or on BBC Three and then turn around and say, oh, I'm going to follow them on Instagram and then in two weeks' time they realise we've got a game and then they come they come to watch us. So it was all of those sorts of things. And I think the big thing, they, they will never tell me this, but I'm pretty sure the reason they wanted to film is they thought it could be a car crash. Let me come to, because obviously you've been asked about the, the penalty in the 1990 mm. on many occasions. And I don't want you to think, oh no, here's that question ad nauseum again. But in all mm. of the attributes that you just spoke about, in some ways, these may have all been almost the DNA, the defining moments that took you to being able to deal with 1990, yeah. with the world on your shoulders, uh, and having to even go up and take a penalty. Who even knows what that feels mm. like? But then the disappointment that you describe as well that you felt, yeah. and almost you felt again that 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 element that you felt the the weight of the team and the weight of the country on you as well. Yeah. Just tell me a little bit how you dealt with that on a human level. Yeah. Not on a football level, but on a human level, taking into account what we've just spoken about. Yeah. I mean, the, the penalty in mind is you know 1990. We're in a semi-final. Yeah. We've got one foot. In a World Cup final, the, I was the team had never ever done that on foreign shores before in their history. We had yeah. a manager that was a wonderful statesman and was about to retire. So at any given time, this was his last game in charge, who gave me my debut as well. So you've got all of that in Just the more mix. more weight. Exactly, more weight. <laughs> Throw to, the weight on yeah, Half a billion people on television looking. And... To be honest with you, it is probably the lowest ebb that I've ever had as as a, as a player, um, and probably one of the lowest ebbs I've ever had as a footballer. Uh, and I include management in there, managing yeah. the Olympic team, all of those things. And I think for me at the time, when it happened, you missed the penalty, that type of thing, you think, well, you're never going to recover. If you ask me the, the question walking back to the halfway line, you think, I'm not going to recover for this. Yeah. And it's amazing when you come away from scenarios and it's really raw at the time you, you probably doesn't you don't see the messages that are in there and it's not until you come away and it's a month later or a year later or whatever you look back you're on in the that. moment exactly yeah i look back i i went into the dressing room after that penalty miss and i was called into a drugs test uh myself peter shilton and two german players oh, went into i was going to ask room. you about this yes. yeah we literally went into a room Peter walked in, give a urine sample and left. So it left myself and two German players sat opposite each other. They didn't say a word. They just won a World Cup semi-final. I just lost a World Cup semi-final and missed a penalty to boot. 
and they didn't say a word to each other for the whole duration. Two hours we sat there together, and it, I didn't really think anything at the time. But when I look back now, I think the humility that they showed in success was quite incredible. And that was a big driver for me, I think, going forward. Every time I've, I've had a success, I always look at the other side. My success often means someone else's failure in the opposition's team. So let's say if you rolled the clock on six years from there, I scored a penalty against Spain. There was euphoria at Wembley in a European Championship. But a Spanish player missed a penalty for them to go out. Yeah. So when the England players are celebrating, my focus is on that Spanish player and to get to him and commiserate with him because of my experience. And that's where you, you've you got to keep picking those good experiences from some of the worst moments in your life, to be quite honest with you. And if you can keep doing that, I, I think you keep striving forward because they're the strong messages in there. Success, when people come and pat me on the back for a great career, it, it, it's almost a resistance with me. It feels it doesn't feel good for right. some reason. When, when, you ha when you suffer an adversity, I think it sharpens focus you embrace it if you can. Sometimes you can't embrace it straight away. It might take a number of weeks, a number of days, yeah. a number of years. But there are great messages in there and great learnings. Now, that's obviously important to you, that story. I know it was in the book mm. and, it, and it immediately resonated with me. Yeah. And you've used a word that I actually, I've got on the screen here, was humility. Yeah. And it takes me back, I sometimes think of, I think it was Colonel Tim Collins when he was addressing the troops way back in the US, and he said, we've got to be ferocious in battle and magnanimous in victory. Yeah. And here what stood out, that those German players were showing you great humility, mm. which has had a huge impact on you. Indeed. And in some ways, they were role modelling, and you've now mirrored it in relation to the Spanish player that you spoke about. Indeed. But a lot of people wouldn't have picked that up on the day. They'd have probably sat there in commiseration with themselves, yeah. felt sorry for themselves, walked out of there, not seen that there was a, a brilliant understanding and a brilliant learning to be had from that to come away from it. And, I mean, you, you're talking about humility. I mean, it was fortunate fortunate enough in, in one of the leadership uh, speeches I'd done at, at Sandhurst oh, right. to get the opportunity to go to Brunei to talk to a Gurkha regiment. I'd done three wow. speeches to, to the Gurkha, Gurkha regiment and the humility that these individuals show blew me away. It really did, you know. That, And I'm speaking with a commanding officer and I'm saying, what are the biggest problems you have dealing with these people? And they said, they don't question anything. They just literally do what's asked of them. incredible, isn't it? Incredible. Uh, and and sometimes we need to get out of them. We need them to question us as leaders, to, to test us and make us better. Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.